We're in Philemon, or Philemon, or however you'd like to pronounce it. Um, it's the last of Paul's 13 pastoral epistles. And we've been doing the series this summer of a synthetic study through each of the book. We're not going into too much detail, but at the same time, we're spending some time on the key points of the message of the letter that Paul wrote. Philemon's just one chapter, so this is kind of a, a synthetic overview would be a little bit different for this book. But it's from this one chapter book that I'm going to take two studies out this week and next week. So the shortest epistle is going to probably get the most attention. There's two points out of the book of Philemon that I want to cover. This morning, as you can see by the title of our study, it's introducing or talking about slavery in the Bible. I notice there's a question mark there. We're going to discuss that this morning. The second one is if you go down to verse 18 of Philemon, you'll see Paul using a phrase at the end of that verse saying, Charge it to my account. And that's the word we get in English. Um, we'll take a look at this next week. This will be the study for next week. But imputation. We'll get into Romans chapter 5. We have Adam's sin imputed to us through the fall, but we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us through salvation. So that'll be next week's study. But this week's study, Philemon part 1, just a little bit of an introduction to the book. It says, Philemon appears to have been a comparatively wealthy Colossian who owned slaves as did most of the people in his day. So this is the context that we're going to be dealing with this morning is Paul's writing this letter to Philemon. About one-third of the population in the Roman Empire during this time was involved in slavery. Philemon was saved through the Apostle Paul, possibly when he was at Ephesus. Now his slave... Anesimus was one of Philemon's slaves. Anesimus ran away, ended up in Rome, where he encountered the Apostle Paul and he became a believer. So here's how it goes. Paul was preaching in emphasis. Philemon was saved. Anesimus was one of Philemon's slaves. He ran away, ended up in Rome, listened to Paul speak, and he got saved. So the slave that ran away ended up being saved. But Philemon is also saved. So we're seeing... First century Roman culture, the gospel now penetrating into the culture and the immorality within the Roman culture of the first century and the immorality that would follow was now being introduced to the gospel. So that's what we're going to keep in mind this morning. Following his conversion, Onesimus came a valuable helper to the apostle. Paul would have liked to keep Onesimus with him but felt a greater responsibility to return him to the Christian master, or to Philemon. So he's within the culture of slavery, is what he's doing here. This is where Paul is working in. Onesimus needed to make things right with Philemon, whom he had wronged. Paul and Onesimus both knew the danger of facing their master, or facing running away from their owner. So it's kind of like if we go to today, and I deal with a lot of guys up at the jail who are bail jumping. They got a warrant out and they're running. That, you know, that kind of a, a mindset with this. Paul wrote this brief 25-verse appeal to pacify Philemon and to effect a reconciliation between the slave and his master. So now, each time I say this word slave this morning, I know it, it, it brings a horrible connotation to our minds. Because when we think of the word slave, we go back to 17th, 18th, 19th century America and we think about the African slave trade. And that brings a sharp you know, jolt to our thinking. Can the Bible or does the Bible teach this same type of slavery? Does the Bible say it's okay to own slaves? So we're looking here, Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. 
and Paul is addressing this problem. So does the Bible teach that slavery is okay? Is God, since he allows slavery in the Bible, as we see, is he a moral monster? And this is the number one argument or one of the most famous or popular arguments of atheists and skeptics. They say the Bible teaches slavery, God's a moral monster, why would I even open up that book? So what we want to think of this morning is if we're confronted with these types of questions from people asking about the Bible and asking these type of questions, how do we answer them? How do we give the biblical account for what is going on in slavery in the Bible? How do we do it? What's the proper method? How can a God of love promote this idea? If slavery is biblical, why are you a Christian? So these are good questions. And this is the reason why this morning I had each one of these typed out like this. It's because I want to go through each verse and demonstrate through the Bible exactly. I want to define what the Bible talks about when regards to slavery. And we have to keep in mind two things. Slaves in the Bible are more like household servants as opposed to the American-slash-African slave trade. They're two different concepts. We can't read American history back into ancient history and think that the conditions for slavery were the exact same. Now, this is a hard concept in America, and John MacArthur wrote an excellent book on this. Um, it's called Slave. When Americans read that word, that's why we see in the New Testament it's translated bondservant, but the Greek word's doulos, which actually means slave. I think the reason why the American translations have taken that route is because when we see that word instantly, our mind goes back. And that's not the context, that is not the culture, and that is not the background of the biblical definition and the biblical use of that word. So that's what we're going to go over this morning. So slavery in early America. I'm going to read this to you. It's from Harriet Beecher Stowe, of the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin wrote that southern masters, now this is American slavery, wrote that southern masters had absolute control over every facet of their slave's life. Quoting, The legal power of the master amounts to an absolute despotism over body and soul, and there is no protection for the slave's life. That is American slavery in the first couple hundred years. That is not biblical slavery of Old Testament times, or in the New Testament. So this morning we're going to take a look at Old Testament slavery, the use of the word and the definition and its function. And then we're going to shift over to the New Testament and see with the New Testament how it uses that same concept. So, biblical indentured servant. That is the word that we're going to be dealing with this morning. When we are in the Old Testament, the word slave is translated in Hebrew, ebed. But what was the culture of the background at the time of Moses when he wrote the Mosaic Law? In the ancient world, slavery had three characteristics. And if we go back to the time of ancient Babylon, ancient Mesopotamia, there was this code known as the Code of Hammurabi, 1780 B.C. Moses came around the scene from 15 to 1400 B.C. So when Moses came onto the scene and God led the children of Israel out of Egypt into the Promised Land, the Code of Hammurabi had been pretty much saturated in the ancient Near East culture for a couple hundred years. What did the Code of Hammurabi teach? A slave was a property. The slave owner's rights were absolute over the slave. And the slave was stripped of his identity. Racial, family, social, marital. And we have to keep in mind, as this was not the case in ancient Israel under the Mosaic Law. So the entire ancient Near East had adopted this Code of Hammurabi. 
and these strict regulations on slavery. God leads the children of Israel out of Egypt into Israel and sets up the Mosaic Law, Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy chapter 28 in the Old Testament. He sets up the Mosaic Covenant. It's right there. There's huge differences. We cannot read the Code of Hammurabi into Mosaic Law. We cannot read ancient um, or, um, near history American slavery into the Old Testament. So let's take a look at the distinctives. The first thing I want to mention, though, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, says that we are created, every human being is created in the image of God, which means every single human being has equal value. That's the biblical precedent right there, right in Genesis chapter 1. We don't have to go any further than that to realize that each human being is unique and each human being is equal to each other. There is nobody who is superior to other in a natural or in a sense of essence. In the nation of Israel, individuals who contract themselves out, often in apprentice-like positions, until they paid back their debts, were what were known as slaves during this time, contract workers. The word translated ebed means servant, labor, work, or slave in the context of Israel, different than slavery surrounding the ancient Near East culture under the Code of Hammurabi. So there's a distinct difference that we're going to see. The person has value in Israel and is not viewed as just property. What's interesting is if we turn to Isaiah 42, which is the first verse I had down here on the bulletin, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Who is this in reference to? It's a prophecy of Jesus. Notice what term is used for Jesus. Behold my servant. That word servant is ebed. It's the word that we see translated servant, bond servant, or slave in the Old Testament. So the Messiah himself, Jesus, is referred to as the same title that we're seeing here in the Old Testament. Pretty interesting when we think this through, that Jesus himself is referred to as the Ebed Yahweh, or the servant of Jehovah. Jesus puts himself under that same type of category. So now slavery in Israel. In Israel, becoming a voluntary servant, or an Ebed, was commonly a starvation prevention measure. A person who had no collateral other than himself, which meant he either went into servanthood or he would starve to death. So in Israel, the concept of slavery was to eliminate poverty. While most people worked in the family business, servants would contribute as domestic workers, apprenticeships or on-the-job type training. This type of servanthood wasn't much different than our typical job in today's society. Once a servant was released, he was free to pursue his own livelihood without any further obligations to the household. He returned to being a full participant in the society of Israel. Becoming an indentured servant, or an ebed, meant a slight step down on the social ladder but a person could step back up as a full citizen after the seventh year. So it was seven years of servanthood normally in general that we're seeing. The law was concerned that indentured servants were to be treated as man, hired from year to year, and were not to be ruled over ruthlessly. So we're seeing the difference between the Mosaic Law 
in the Old Testament. So when we see that word servant or we see that word slave, we're not immediately going back to the, um, the old American practices of slavery, but what we're seeing is God called out Israel in the surrounding ancient Near East, which was under the coat of Hammurabi, and switched. They're treating people horrible, like property. Under Israel, they were to be treated as domestic workers or servanthoods, servants, particularly to eliminate the problem of starvation. So the next verse on our list is Leviticus 25, 53 through 55. Let's see what the uh, Old Testament says. It says, He shall be with him as a yearly hired servant, and he shall not rule with vigor over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed in these years, then he shall be released on the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For the children of Israel are servants to me. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Israel, or land of Egypt. I am the Lord their God. So we're seeing there was a time limit. This wasn't a complete ownership of the person, whole heart, mind, body, and soul. This was a temporary seven-year apprenticeship type deal where the individual who had no collateral at all, only had himself, would step down on the social ladder, come underneath a family or a business, learn the skill, learn the trade, turn around after seven years, and then he's able to support himself. This is what we're seeing. The released year reminded the Israelites that poverty-induced servanthood was not an ideal position to be in. So if you're at the brink of starvation, God had a way out for these individuals. And this is where we see that term ebony being used in the society of Israel. Servanthood existed in Israel because poverty existed. And this was one of the measures in which the, um, the Lord had, through Moses and the law found a way to help this. So what we're seeing here is no poverty, no servants. So no poverty in Israel would equal no slavery, if we want to use the term like that, but we have to make sure we're using the right word, abid, and we have to make sure we're using it in its proper context, not the way it comes to our mind today from bad past historical examples. If servants lived in Israel, it was voluntarily not forced. The goal, no poverty. Lifelong servanthood was prohibited unless somebody loved the head of the household and wanted to attach himself to him. So here's the other option. If we go to Exodus 21, and we read verses 5 and 6. If the servant had served his seven years, and he built an excellent relationship with his boss, with the family, with the company, what he was able to do, if we see here in verse 5 of 21, if the servant, or the ebbed, plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door, or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his right ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So now that we understand the context of the Old Testament in regards to servanthood or slavery, we can read this verse and we could be like, wow, that's pretty interesting. This person had nothing to offer but himself. He offered himself, and he developed an excellent relationship with the um, household master, and he turned around and he dedicated the rest of his life to him. Pretty interesting way to get somebody out of poverty. But now, read this through 21st century eyes. With the bad past historical examples that we've had of slavery, we see the word master there. We're like, ooh. We see the word pierce the right ear. We think of 17th, 18th, 19th century America here, which is where that, that, that tension rises when we talk about slavery in the Bible because our mind instantly goes there. But if we read the Old Testament in its context, in the nation of Israel, 
That's not what this is referring to. So servants, even if they hadn't paid off their debts, if they still owed money, were granted release every seventh year with all debts forgiven. No collateral, no ownership of property as humanity. After the seven-year time was up, they were released. Now, what I want to read this morning, if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, I want to read verses 1 through 15. Rather than hearing me say what the Bible says, I'd just like to just simply read it and allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. As far as being released on the seventh year, which brings everything into perspective when we think about slavery in the Old Testament. It's not necessarily the best word to use. Abid, servanthood, indentured servant, bond servant. Those are better words. They bring better connotations to our mind. Now in verse 1, it says, At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to that which is owed to you by your brother, except when there be no poor among you. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land, and the Lord your God is giving you to possess an inheritance. Only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with him and to care all his commandments which I have commanded you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall Reign over many nations, but they will not reign over you. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for your needs, whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, The seventh year... The year of release is at hand, and your eye by evil against your brother, and you will give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works in which you put your hand. For the Lord will never cease from the land, therefore I command to you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother to your poor and to your needy in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free. And when you send him away from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command this thing today. So we see here when we read this, and we just allow the scriptures to speak for themselves, not bring in any false type of mindset or presupposition of slavery into the Old Testament. But if we allow the Old Testament to speak for itself and to see exactly what's going on here, at the end of there it said, you were once a slave in Egypt, and they were. They were slaves in Egypt, God brought them out. They had very harsh conditions. And what the Lord was eliminating through the Mosaic Law were those harsh practices that the ancient code of Hammurabi had pushed in around the ancient Near East. The Old Testament legislation sought to prevent voluntary debt servitude. 
by giving to the poor, by eliminating that problem. Therefore, nobody would even have to be an ebbed or a slave. A good deal of Mosaic legislation was given to protect the poor from even temporary indentured servants. The poor were given opportunities to glean edges of fields or pick lingering fruit from the trees that Israel has harvested in the land. As you see here, we got Deuteronomy 24.20. We're not going to turn to this one. But pretty much what it's saying is, is they were harvesting the crops, as they were harvesting the fruit. They were commanded to leave some on the trees or to command to leave some on on harvest for the poor to come by and glean. So therefore, if the poor are in need of something, they can go and they could glean that food that is sitting on the edge of the field or sitting in the tree. That way, they don't even have to sell themselves as a servant for seven years. So God was even trying to prevent the measures for the poor in the Mosaic Code by allowing this type of gleaning to take place. Fellow Israelites were commanded to lend freely to the poor, as we've just seen. If the poor couldn't afford high-end sacrificial animals, they could sacrifice smaller, less expensive ones, as we see in Luke chapter 1, where Mary brought forth her sacrifice. You could tell by the sacrifice that she brought forth that it was from a poor family because they could not necessarily afford what was required, but it was okay. The Lord said, this is fine. You see that in, in the early parts of the Gospels as well. Debts were automatically canceled every seven years. When debt servants were released, they were generously provided without a grudging heart. They were restored back into society, and they had that skill that they learned over the seven years in the household that they served into. So what we're seeing here now is a clear picture of what biblical servanthood is. Understanding the culture, understanding the background, the context, what the word means, and the very fact that Jesus himself in Isaiah 42 refers to himself as the Ebed Yahweh or the servant of Jehovah, should give us a pretty clear picture and a clear, pretty clear understanding that when people come up and ask us slavery questions, how harsh the Old Testament God was, you can turn around and say, absolutely not. That's not the context of Scripture at all. What we're doing is we're reading our 21st century understanding of slavery in America back into the ancient Near East Old Testament times, and that's not what the Scriptures teach. So there we have that for the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? The New Testament also mentions slavery, but we're moving now. So Moses was from 15 to 400, 1500 to 1400 BC. We're going to fast forward 1500 years now. Now what nation is in charge? The Roman Empire. Slavery was different in the context of the Roman Empire than it was in the society of Israel. The Roman world was much different, namely that it existed of institutionalized property. Slavery. Slavery was viewed as property in the Roman Empire. Rome, unlike the Old Testament, sought to institutionalize not merely servanthood, but slavery. But slavery was not cruel to all slaves in the Roman Empire. So yes, it was more harsh. Yes, it was more severe, but not in every single instance. For example, some could possibly own property, some slaves could pay their way out of slavery, and some slaves could even start their own businesses. So again, it does not match up to the historical example that the American culture has. It's not even close to that. Yes, it was more harsh than in Israel, probably similar to the ancient code of Hammurabi, but again, not how we view slavery today. Let's turn to Philippians 2, verse 7. Like in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42.1, um, the Messiah was referred to as the Ebed Yahweh or the servant of Jehovah. Here's another interesting one. Philippians 2.7 says, this is referring to Jesus, the incarnate Christ, made himself of no reputation 
taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. Notice that word bondservant there. That's the Greek word doulos, which means slave. So in the Old Testament, we see Jesus referring himself to the Ebed. In the New Testament, we see Jesus referring to himself as the doulos, or the slave. And in this context here, it's somebody who had no rights of his own. So when Jesus came down and he consistently keeps saying, I come not to do my will, but to the will of my Father, Jesus completely surrendered himself to absolutely everything the Father wanted him to do, say, speak, whatever. That's what Jesus did, referring himself. So just imagine this now. You have the eternal God. You have the creator of the whole universe, right? In heaven, we're speaking now through our terminology because God exists in eternity. He's not bound by time, but just so we can make sense of this. He's in heaven. He decides to take on a human nature and come down to earth and take its lowest rank, lowest possible rank, the doulas, okay? So Jesus is in heaven existing, continuously existing as God, the second person. Takes on a human nature, enters into his own creation that he created, and took its lowest position, the doulas. So when we read that word doulas in the New Testament, just remember that Jesus was there first. He did the same thing. He put himself in that same type of circumstance. So we see that in Philippians 2.7. Now, verses that demonstrate the New Testament is opposed to slavery. Look at Colossians 3, verses 10 and 11. It says, And have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. So what this is saying here is it's speaking into a, a culture that has slavery, and this was extremely revolutionary during this time. And what Paul was writing here in the, in the book of Colossians is the society that we live in today views slaves way down here and the master way up here. And what the Bible is teaching is God looks down upon all of humanity. He is seeing everybody equal, everybody the same, because of Genesis 126, everybody being created in the image of God. Today we're like, yeah, common sense. But in this culture, during this time, it wasn't common sense. This was completely revolutionary. Speaking into a culture of slavery, masters were commanded to treat their slaves well. Again, something else that was revolutionary during this time. We didn't really see much of this in the first century Roman culture. But now what the Bible is doing, it's saying, hey, you guys, Wake up a little bit. Understand what we're doing here. So in Ephesians 6, 9, we see, And you, masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So a culture that accepts you to mistreat their slaves, what the Bible's saying is, no, that's completely wrong. We're all equal. Remember, God is your master. So what, what did God do for us? We just read it in Philippians 2, seven. Took on a human nature and took the lowest rank. He did that for us. So we turn around to God and say, all right, Lord, I surrender all my rights to you. How do you want me to live? And what we're starting to see here in Ephesians 6, 7 is being introduced into this ancient Roman culture is everybody treated equally. Everybody treated with dignity. Everybody treated fairly because we're created in the image of God. Now, another interesting thing is if we turn to the next one, 1 Timothy 1, 9-10. 17th and 18th century slavery involved kidnapping. 
which is also condemned in the New Testament. See, the slave owners in, ancient, in, in a couple hundred years ago in America would use the Bible to say that God allows slavery. And they would use that to oppose the Christians at the time who were speaking up against slavery. People in England also were doing the same thing in their country, speaking out against slavery. Granville Sharp's one person who comes to mind. One of the things that were needed is they would, they would go into the continent of Africa, kidnap people, and then bring them over. So if you're going to use the Bible to promote slavery in America, like was done a couple hundred years ago, look at verses 9 and 10, saying, Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly or sinners, for the unholy, the profane, the murderers, the fathers, the murders of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, read the next one, for kidnappers. Anybody involved in any type of kidnapping whatsoever, strictly forbidden from Scripture. So these people a couple hundred years ago in America who were trying to use the Bible to promote slavery weren't reading it very carefully. It's very easy to see that the Bible does not match up with what they were doing. But when it refers to slavery, we have to make sure we're reading it in its context in the Roman culture. Paul and the New Testament apostles introducing this concept of everybody being equal, masters treating your slaves free. What, and then eventually what this does throughout the next couple hundred years is we see as cultures become more Christianized, we see the um, abolition of slavery. We even see that in our country a couple hundred years ago as well. Paul and Peter didn't call for an uprising to overthrow slavery in Rome. See, this is what's interesting. People are like, well, why would you even write about it? Why would they even condone it? Why would Paul even think about asking permission to Philemon to free Onesimus? Why wouldn't he just take him? You know, what we have to realize is they didn't want the Christian faith to be perceived as something that was a social disorder. That what God was going to do through the New Testament and through the apostles was transform and change the hearts of the individuals. So the society from the foundation would change itself. The apostles weren't going to come in and just completely throw, overthrow every social evil, but the Holy Spirit was going to enter into the hearts, into the minds of the individual cultures and transform them from within. So here we see Christian slaves in 1 Peter 2. Christian slaves were told to do what was right, even if they were mistreated their conscience would be clear. Now, this is first century Roman culture. This isn't a couple hundred years ago in America. He's talking about first century Roman culture. So 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, or that's the word doulas, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it? When you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. For himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live forever in righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like all like sheep gone astray, now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So what this is doing here, it's contrasting what Jesus has done for us. Now our proper attitude is to surrender all our rights to the Lord and to live in the exact same way that he has told us and conducted us to live. So as Christianity spread throughout the known world, 
all slave cultures would be eventually influenced through the scriptures. So where the scriptures would go, it would influence that slave culture around it. Their obedience to God's word for freedom from slavery would be required of them, even if neglected to do so. So we see this, the Old Testament form of um, slavery under the ancient Near East Code of Hammurabi versus the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Law. We see in the New Testament now the Roman culture and the gospel going into these things. How about today? Let's fast forward to today, 21st century. No longer do we see a concept of slavery, but we see still racism going on in our, in our society. So how do we answer the call to racism? There have been a lot of good political movements, a lot of good social movements that have come up and have arisen. But my, just like we see in first century Roman culture, we don't want to use politics to solve the problem of racism because it's not going to work. Racism is a symptom. A symptom of what? Sin. So if we deal with the problem of sin, we'll already naturally deal with the problem of racism. So we see racism today, wherever it exists, it's a form of sin just because somebody's skin color is one color and somebody's is another. Another society or culture thinks it's superior to another. To us, that's ridiculous, but in the ancient times, it was not. But we have lived in a culture with the Bible plainly taught for a couple hundred years. What does the Bible teach about racism? Well, it's interesting on Mars Hill, Acts chapter, Acts chapter 17. I'll read this to you in verse 26. God speaking to the or Paul, I'm sorry, Paul speaking to the pagan cultures around him said, And he, referring to God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God has created all of us from one blood. If we take it biblically, we all go back to Adam and Eve. We're all created in the image of God. There is no superiority from one race to another, from one nation to another. God has appointed our boundaries and our times, and God has created all of us through Adam and Eve. And in Galatians 3, 24 through 28, we see, therefore, the law was a tutor to bring us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith, which will be our topic next week. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, referring to being justified by faith. God has no favorites. God created us all equally. He created us all in his image. He appointed our boundaries. He appointed our times. And we're all created from one blood. So biblically, there is absolutely no grounds for racism whatsoever. This may seem common sense to us because we've been reading these scriptures for so many years. But to a culture filled with hate, to a culture filled with sin, to a history absolutely loaded with atrocities, this is the answer to racism. It's right here. It's the simple gospel. Social movements are great. They're good. They have their purpose. But the problem is the heart of man. And wherever we have that sinful heart of man, we're going to be continuously seeing these problems. So let's uh, close in a word of prayer and we'll be uh, finished for this morning. Lord, we just thank you for your scriptures and we thank you that we can come before them and when we hear words like slavery or master that we don't instantly flinch and put the Bible down thinking that it condones the type of slavery that we had in this nation just a couple hundred years ago. And Lord, we just thank you for this that you have all of the answers to the social ills, to our social problems, that really the problem is the heart of man. 
and that we just pray that the gospel goes out into the dying world that is lost. Lord, that the heart of stone is taken out of the individual and the heart of flesh is replaced with it and the spirit of God indwells that person. Any type of movement, Lord, has to be start with you. We have to have your outpouring of the Holy Spirit before anybody truly changes. And this is what we pray for. Not to rely on our politicians and our leaders, but to rely on the simple power of you, Lord, that your provision is here, that you're going out, and that we just faithfully serve you. Lord, like you are called in the Old Testament, the Ebed, or in the New Testament, the Dulas. Lord, you identify yourself with both terms. We pray we do the same. We pray we surrender all of our rights to you and that we listen to you through your word, and that we conform our lifestyle to what your word says. So we thank you for all of these things. We lift our requests up before you, and we ask this all in your son's name. Amen.